Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. This past Thursday was Tisha B'Av, and so we have passed out, passed through uh, the time of mourning, and now we're in, entering into seven weeks of consolation leading up to Yom Teruah and Rosh Hashanah. And during this time period, our Haftarah reading will be from the book of Isaiah, and really not just from the book of Isaiah, but from Isaiah 40 to the end of the book. And it's all speaking on words of consolation, focusing on the redemption that is to come and the messianic era. And so the sages characterize this part of Isaiah as being uh, entirely of comfort. And today, being the first of these seven weeks of consolation is known as Shabbat Nachamu, which is the Sabbath of consolation. And it gets that name from Isaiah 40 which is our after reading this week. So we're going to read the first few verses of Isaiah 40. And it says, comfort, comfort my people. And that's where it says, nachamu, nachamu ami. And comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, when you think about that passage that we just read to a people who have been in exile, who have been suffering, to hear the voice of the Lord crying out, comfort, comfort. And this is what this comfort looks like. Straight ways in the desert, a highway for our God. Every valley be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low and uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. That in itself is wonderful, right? But then go even further, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. It's a beautiful picture of God's desire to bring restoration. So wonderful that you saying that at the end because that's, that's our God. He is continually looking for ways to do good to us. It's his great desire to do good, to bring restoration, to bring the redemption and a renewed hope. In last week's portion, Moses was encouraging the people as they were getting approaching the day in which they would cross over the Jordan and enter into the land. And he was telling them that God would never leave them but he would carry them to their destination just as he's carried them through all their time in the wilderness and brought them out of Egypt. And in our message last week, we spoke of the hope that we have in the coming redemption. 
And, and as we spoke about our hope in the coming redemption, we, we noted how we aren't entirely just waiting for the coming redemption, because even now we have a foretaste of the world to come through the spiritual redemption we have through Yeshua, our Messiah. So we, all creation is groaning for the sons of God to be revealed and for the redemption of, of all things, the restoration of all things, which includes our physical redemption. But even now we have the spiritual redemption to walk in and the power of the Spirit and that God has given us what we need to move forward into a greater measure of that because He has redeemed us from the law of sin and death, made us a new creation and empowered us by His Spirit because of the resurrection of Yeshua and the life He lives. And we read from Romans 8, and we're going to go back to Romans 6 a little bit here. In Romans 6, verses 4 through 14, Paul talks about the newness of life that we have. He says, We were buried therefore with Him, being Yeshua, by baptism into death, in order that just as Messiah was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Messiah, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that, that Messiah, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God and Messiah Yeshua. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will, not, will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. And so with this, with that passage, we've been made alive spiritually, and we have confidence that even though our flesh will die, we will yet live because of the resurrection of Yeshua. And if we have the life by the Spirit now, then we will have the resurrection by the same Spirit that raised Yeshua from the grave. And I was thinking about that aspect. When we have confidence that death has no reign over us, that means we can live without fear. And I don't know if you guys have ever seen the movie The Replacements. It was about a football program many years ago. NFL went on strike, and they brought in all these people who weren't starters and formed a football team. And anyway, the, it's an entertaining movie. But towards the end of it, when the strike is about to end, they have one more game. And the coach says, this is, this is your last chance to go out there and play the game. This is your last chance to go, go out and do this. And you know what that makes you? That makes you very dangerous. It's like, well, because they could lay it all on the line. They had no fear of tomorrow. 
right? So it was now, now is game time. And so when we think about the life that we live empowered by the Spirit, free from sin and death, that we know that we're going to live forever under the reign of our righteous King, that makes us very dangerous people. Not dangerous in a threatening way in the world, but within the Spirit, within the heavens, that God moving through us is going to shake the world as we know it as part of the bringing of his restoration. So he gives that to us and calls us to move forward in it, to move forward with confidence. And speaking of the resurrection, looking further at 1 Corinthians 15, 53 through 57, Paul is talking about our body, the, the contrast between the physical body we have versus the everlasting one that we will have. He says, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, but the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Yeshua Messiah. Now within this, again, it's just a, it's a looking forward to the transformation that is to come for the reality of the restoration taking place in our physical bodies. Now one thing to note on this, in both the Romans passage and 1 Corinthians 15, there were two statements there that often are, I don't know, taken a little bit out of context. One, in Romans, it was speaking about you're not under law, but under grace. And then 1 Corinthians, talking about the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. You know, Paul goes to great lengths to say that even though we do not enter the promise by the works of the law, we enter it by grace, but yet still we are to walk according to the law, according to the Torah, because that is transformative to both us and to the world around us. And it's actually walking in accordance with what our true nature is through the redemption we have by the Spirit. And when he says the power of sin is the law, the question becomes, well, is the Torah is the Torah what gave sin power? And the answer, in one, in one aspect, you could look at it and say, well, in some degree, yes, but it, largely it's, the answer is no. Because I'll give a brief explanation on that. So the Torah has commandments and, and issues regarding righteousness and how we're to live. When we fail to live up to the Torah, we walk in sin and we fall short of the glory of God. And when we walk in sin, fall short of the glory of God, then we receive the wages of sin were it not for grace. And the wages of sin is death. So if there were no law, there would be no sin and there would be no death. But death did not enter in at the giving of the Torah at Sinai. It enter entered in in the garden because the law given to Adam of not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was broken. And when that law was broken, sin gained its power. 
right? So the power of sin preceded the Torah. The Torah didn't have to go away for, to go away for the power of sin to be destroyed. The power of sin was destroyed through the work of Yeshua, through his death and resurrection, and it will be put to death completely at the redemption of all things. And now, speaking of the Torah, this, this week's portion has a, a great passage regarding even the role of Torah for the nations. And it's from Deuteronomy 4, 6 through 8. He says, Keep them and do them, speaking of the commandments, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations or the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? That's the lens through which God sees the Torah and how he desires for the nations to see it. And the way that the nations see it in that light is when they see a people who are revealing that Torah in their life and their actions. Not just hearing a talk, but actually seeing it walked out, seeing it revealed, seeing the glory of God revealed in the people who profess God as their king. And so God has given us his Torah, he's given us his spirit. And in 2 Peter 1, 2 through 11, he says he's given us all that we need. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Yeshua, our master. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. See, right there again, we see he's given us, he's made us partakers of the divine nature with his spirit placed within us so that we might become the sons of God and reveal his glory by escaping the corruption in our flesh that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Yeshua Messiah. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and his choosing you or, or your election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into, eternal, into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Yeshua Messiah. Now, as we're reading that passage, we see several things. We see God choosing, calling, and choosing us 
as a people unto himself. We also see this progression that's taking place within our journey of walking out our faith. As he, you know, and this is in verses 5 and continuing where he says, from your vir- ad, you know, for, uh, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and self-control, steadfastness, godliness, ultimately leading up to love. It starts with this calling. It starts with these, a trust in God, okay? It starts with a trust in God who has called you and chosen you. And then it moves into the practice of faith. And then it grows in knowledge of God in continued sanctification by the Spirit, culminating in this great brotherly affection and brother and brotherly love and love of God. It's a it's a smoldering flame that grows into a fire. Right? And so as we looked at this, as we look at this and we say, all right, well, we understand that we've been redeemed out of death and given new life, and we've been called to be holy for God is holy. We know that He's chosen us, given this us this great calling. This is, this is fantastic. But then the question is, how do we get there? How do we walk it out? Because as we've talk, talked about in the past, we know that man's flesh is weak and that man fails. And we know that all, all flesh, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And we need a Savior. And we need grace to be able to take hold of things. So how is it that we actually move in this. So again, last week, Moses' message to the people was an encouragement. Have faith in God. Realize that he's been with you, that he's carried you all this way. And now, how do you move forward with him? And in this week's portion, we have what can be broken into three speeches by Moses. The team at Aleph Beta uh, presented the, the breakdown of this, and I'm just going to give a high-level summary of it. They broke it into three speeches based on the structure of how the communication was given from Moses to the children of Israel in these chapters. And in fact, the chapter breakdown is almost perfect for the three speeches. And the way it works out is that the chapters begin... Actually, I'll... I'll roughly touch on this in in a very similar manner. So, for example, in Deuteronomy 4, 1, he says, Now, O Israel, listen to the decrees and to the ordinances that I teach you to perform so that you may live and come and possess the land that the Lord, the God of your forefathers, gives you. And then the way chapter 4 ends is right as chapter 4 is coming to an end, In verse 45, he says, these are the testimonies, the decrees, and the ordinances that Moses spoke to the children of Israel. So it opened with, listen to the decrees and the ordinances that I teach you, and concludes with, these are the testimonies, decrees, and ordinances that Moses taught them. Chapter 5, Moses called them all together, hear, O Israel, the decrees and the ordinances that I speak in your ears today, learn them and be careful to perform them. 
So now he's beginning speech number two. And chapter five concludes roughly the same way. And in verse 28, when he says, as for you, stand here with me and I shall speak to you the entire commandment, decrees and ordinances that you shall teach them. So we got the bookends going on and then we have more of this, chapter 6. This is the commandment, the decrees and ordinances that the Lord your God commanded you. So we have the pattern of these chapters being broken down into speeches according to those bookends. And each speech has a different theme. The first speech in Deuteronomy 4 is regard to the destiny of the children of Israel. What God, God has called them for and there's encouragement that God goes with you and he speaks to you along the way, right? So Moses is led in with trust, trust God, look at where, what he's done, how he's carried you, and now he's calling you forward, but he's going with you and he's speaking to you along the way and taking you to your destiny. And then chapter five of Deuteronomy is very much about the covenant and God affirming the covenant with the forefathers and that the children of Israel are to walk in faithful covenant with him. And then Deuteronomy 6 through the first part of Deuteronomy 7, God is speaking of oneness, of the relationship that is at, at the core of what he desires with the children of Israel. And so if we were to look at this, we have a progression much like what we were talking about in 1 Peter, where we start out with trust in God, and then we realize that the, the calling that we have and how we begin to walk in that, and then we walk in covenant faithfulness, growing in knowledge and love of God, which is how the, Moses' speech concludes here. So he's got the same structure of laying things out, but, but he, it culminates in Deuteronomy 6 with God saying, I want you to love me because I first loved you. And this love that we'll have will bring unity between us. And as I'd read, and we'll get to more of that here in just a little bit, but as I read the, the three speeches, there were a few things that kept standing out to me apart from the bookends. And was I kept, one, I kept seeing over and over the scripture saying, God desires to do good for you. Do this so that it will be good for you. And then I saw multiple times that God is a jealous God. And then over and over, hearing about God speaking from the fire and the children of Israel hearing God from the fire and the reverence that that was bringing up within them. And so I went back to to look over that a little bit. And in Deuteronomy 4, he says, do these things so that you may live and come to the, possess the land, that God is close. And he speaks in verse 11 and 12 about them seeing the smoke and the fire and the voice out of the fire. In verse 24, God says that he is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Verse 31, that he is merciful and will not abandon you nor forget the covenant. And again, verse 36, again, speaking of the voice from the fire. And verse 40, saying that he desires to do good. And then jumping forward to Deuteronomy 5, again, 
Verse 4, the topic of speaking from the fire comes up. Verse 9, a jealous God. Verses, in verse 10, God speaks of his kindness to thousands of generations. He reiterates again that it will be good for you. Again, speaking from the fire, that all of this is for your good multiple times. In Deuteronomy 6, we see again, verse 13 and verse 18, speaking of God desiring this to be good for you. And in verse 15, God being a jealous God. But what's missing from the third speech is speaking from the fire. So that's interesting. But the goodness that God desires, and that God's speaking of him being a jealous God, is through each of the speeches. And the fire is prominent in the first two. Now, when, when the scripture speaks of God being a jealous God, I know we've spoken of this in times past, so I'll just touch on it briefly. It's speaking of his not selfish jealousy or uh, envy, but rather a zealousness for the relationship that he, ha that he has with his people and really for the glory which he is due. And in all three cases that it shows up in these three speeches, it's always in the context of a warning against idolatry. Have no other gods before me, for I am a jealous God. Right? So he says, I am zealous for my people, my people who are the special treasure and possession who I have bought for my own. And in Deuteronomy 40, excuse me, Deuteronomy, I don't think there is a Deuteronomy 40, is there? Anyway. <laughs> so, Deuteronomy 4. Let's go with that one, verse 32 through 40. We'll read here. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask for, from one end of heaven to the other, whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire, as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God, there is no other beside him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day, know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Therefore ye shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. It's a mighty passage of God's glory, of how he's giving reminders of how he's spoken to the children of Israel, how he revealed himself to them that they might see him 
and revere him. And out of that place of reverence, heed his voice for their own good. You know, some kings may rule and demand obedience so that it will go well for the king, right? But here God says, I'm giving you my word and calling you to obey so that it will be for your good. For your good, so I can bring forward all the promises I have declared over you. And speaking more of the fire in, in Deuteronomy 5, 19 through 23, Scripture says, and you shall not, actually I'm on the wrong verse. This is a condition where sometimes things don't match up. Um, or I have my notes wrong, let me check. These words the Lord spoke to your entire congregation on the mountain. He just repeated the Ten Commandments. From the midst of the fire, the cloud and the thick cloud, a great voice never to be repeated. And he inscribed them on two stone tablets and gave them to me. It happened that when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness and the mountain was burning in fire, that you, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, approached me. You said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness, and we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. This day we saw that the Lord will speak to a person and he can live. But now, why should we die when this great fire consumes us? If we continue to hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer, we will die. For is there any human that has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? So they realize that they have heard God's voice from the fire. They've seen this great sign and they've lived. Yet, there's a concern that were God's glory to still be so manifest to them in this way that they would die. And so they asked Moses to hear on their behalf and to speak to them all that God would say. So here we have this all-consuming fire of a jealous God and a people who recognizes their frailty before him, even to the point that they can't listen, even just hearing his voice could cause them death. And I'm, I'm mentioning this because it leads into the next point. In Deuteronomy 4, 3 through 4, at the beginning of this passage, Moses says, Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast or cleaved to the Lord your God are all alive today. Okay, so he notes, those of you who cleaved to the Lord your God are all alive today. And in Deuteronomy 10, actually, let's go to Deuteronomy 13. But Deuteronomy 10, 20, 11, 22, they each speak of cleaving to God, commands to cleave to God. In Deuteronomy 13, 4, he says, You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast or cleave to him. Now, when we think of cleaving, okay, the word cleave is devak, 
okay? And there's something known as devakut, which is attachment, okay? Cleaving within its context of understanding how it is you cleave to something is presented in Genesis 2, 24, where it says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. There's this union that is taking place between these two separate entities that is cleaving, holding fast. When Heather and I were going through marriage counseling, the people talking to us gave us a wonderful illustration of what cleaving is. They handed each of us a piece of duct tape. And they said, okay, each piece of duct tape represents you. Okay, Heather, you have yours. Chris, you have yours. Y'all are going to be married and you're going to cleave with one another. So take these two pieces with the sticky sides facing each other and put them together. That's cleaving. Have you ever tried to pull apart two pieces of duct tape? It's not going to happen. I mean, let alone taking two pieces and putting them together fully face-to-face versus just the time you're trying to use the duct tape and you pull it off and your piece folds around, wraps around, it's almost ruined because you can't peel it apart. Okay, you know what? That's, a, that's the picture of cleaving. And so now the commandment is to cleave to the Lord your God. But yet he's a cons- all-consuming fire where if you just hear his voice, you would be consumed. So how is it that we can be called to cleave to an all-consuming fire? And the sages wrestled with this concept, and they said, how can we cleave to an all-consuming fire and not ourselves be destroyed? And one of the ways that they talked about this is that you would cling to a righteous person who represents God unto you. And this is a, this is a topic dealing with something, someone called a tzaddik. That's a righteous one. And a tzaddik is a, it's a righteous individual who has given himself over to the Lord, who has achieved some level of emptying himself such that more and more of God can fill him up. One who walks in righteousness. Now, we know... Well, okay, so throughout time, there have been many who have been called tzaddik. Even James, the brother of Yeshua, the scripture refers to him as a righteous one. There are many referred to as righteous ones. Now, a righteous one does not necessarily mean one who is free from all sin, right? Because no man could be called a tzaddik, a righteous one, because they all have sin. But there is yet one who was sinless and is the perfect tzaddik, and that's Yeshua, our Messiah. But what the sages say about this is that the meaning of cleaving to God, who is a consuming fire, God gives us a way to draw near to him through attaching ourselves to righteous ones and learning from them. And Rashi says that the idea is to cleave to the students and sages of the Torah, and it's considered as if you cleave to God. 
And in uh, the Rambam notes that within this idea, within this concept, we're commanded to mix and associate with wise men and to always be in their company, to join with them in every possible manner of fellowship, in eating, drinking, and business affairs, to the end that we may succeed in becoming like them in respect of their actions and acquiring true opinions from their words. Okay, so within this concept, the idea is to become like these righteous individuals. And I know often in, in Christian thought, it's like, well, we don't do that because we have Yeshua. Yeshua is our righteous one. He's the one we cling to. And absolutely, there's no one, there was no one more fit or perfect for us to cleave to and to become like. He is the perfect representation of God. And so, but that doesn't nullify what, what God has given us here on this world as well of righteous individuals to learn from and grow together with. That's part of the growth that we have in the body is learning from one another. And, you know, I'm saying this, it's not without scriptural back, uh, backing. For Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 4, 16, he says, be imitators of me. And in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he says, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Messiah. Right? Paul wasn't taking away from the need for us to cling to Messiah and learn from him, but he was saying, look, I'm a physical example to you here today for you to learn from and grow from because I am looking to Messiah for who I am to be. Now, all of us looking to Messiah for who we are to be learn from him and grow from him, but we also learn and grow from one another. Now, within this concept of the tzaddik as well, some other interesting things that allude to the Messiah. The concept is that the tzaddik draws, the perfect tzaddik, the true tzaddik, draws everything to him, for he is the foundation of the world and everything derives from him. All the other tzaddikim, all the other righteous ones, are only branches of the true tzaddik. Right? That's a rabbinic understanding of the tzaddik. It's a fascinating thought, right? The recognition that there are tzaddikim, there are righteous ones, but they're all branches of the true tzaddik. And that's that, that concept with the tzaddik, who is the foundation of the world, they say that it is in his merit that the world is sustained. This is our Messiah, guys. In Colossians 1, 15 through 17, this is what Paul says. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Here he is laying out. He is the true tzaddik, in whose merit the whole world is sustained and everything derives from him. And now with this idea of the branches, well, this should take our, our thoughts to Yeshua and what he spoke in just the hours before he was betrayed in the book of John 15, verses 1 through 11. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. 
Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you may bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So here it is. Yeshua is even speaking in terms of himself as the true tzaddik, to whom all the other righteous ones are to be attached to, getting all their source from him. That's how we move in this progression from trust in God to growth in covenant faithfulness and coming to a place of knowing God and loving Him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And He's the one who strengthens us and equips us to do this very thing. If you note, there's no aspect of this that we can do on our own. We know the flesh fails, and we require this rebirth by the Spirit. And then not only do we, re do we require this rebirth by the Spirit, we require the abiding in Yeshua as our source, clinging to Him as the righteous one who fuels us, who gives us the very perfect picture of what faithfulness looks like to our God and King. And it's His desire to bring us into greater relationship with the Father, that the Father might be revealed to us, and that through that we would know eternal life, because he says that is what eternal life is, is knowing the one true God. And knowing the one true God is relational. It's relational. It's this oneness that he's called us to. And that's where we really get in this third speech that Moses is giving to the children of Israel when he's gone through speaking of the reverence that they should have for God and then coming in and saying, it's God desires all of this for your good. He's desiring to pour out blessings on you. And the greatest blessing he can give is through his son, that you might know him, that you might cleave to him and possess all of the inheritance that he desires to give, both in the physical and in the spiritual. And here in this third speech is where we find the Shema. In Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, we read exactly what we say every time we get together to worship God. We say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's the very first phrase of the Shema. 
and it continues with what's known as the Ve'ahavta. And Ve'ahavta means you shall love. Ve'ahavta is you shall love. So here in verse 5, when he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall walk and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign in your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And that this love of God that comes from knowing Him would be passed from generation to generation. In Deuteronomy 7, 6-11, as, as he's concluding this speech, he gives them a reminder of who they are, what their identity is. And he says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your, your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him. By destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. But here it is, this treasured possession whom God chose, not based on their merit, but on his faithfulness to the covenant, on his great love for them. You know that grace was working all the way through in the story of God's redemption. It was grace by which he brought the children of Israel out of, e out of Egypt. It was grace by which he gave them the covenant. It was grace by which he brought them into the promised land. Because who could stand and argue that the children of Israel had merited entering the promised land during their time wandering in the wilderness because of their perfect faithfulness? Didn't happen, right? But they were still brought into the land because of God's love and his faithfulness of the covenant. But yet, even in the midst of him pouring out grace, he said, still said, now heed my word. Walk according to who I have called you as a special treasure and a holy nation so that I can continue to pour out blessings upon you because I long to do good for you. Even in the exile, God longs to do good for his children and does not abandon faithfulness to them. And so at the beginning, we were talking about God choosing, as we read in 1 Peter, and then God choosing here in Deuteronomy 7. And if we continued in John 15, we'd find the same concept in John 15, 12 through 17. Yeshua says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. 
You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For, for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your sh fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Just over and over, this picture of the love of God and the, the desire for him to do good to us brings transformation. It brings transformation because of the great work that he's done within us and then the revelation that he's given and calling us forward into greater levels of understanding, of knowing him, walking with him. And it all comes down to this aspect of love. Build All of it building up to love. It seems that that love, that relationship, that clinging, that oneness with God is the desire. And he's going to take us along the path that leads us to it. Reminding us all along the way of his faithfulness, of his promises, of the power that he's given us and the great calling to love the Lord your God to cling to Yeshua, our righteous one, who's given, who he's given to us, to be transformed by the Spirit and to follow God all of our days that it may be good for us as his word transforms us and flows out in and through us so that the world may look and say, is there any nation like this in all the earth? You know, I, it's funny, I just had a dream come back to me from last night. And in the dream, there were a, gr a group of people gathered to talk about how to walk out um, faithfulness to God and have it flow in the relationships. I didn't know these people. But there was a guy who walked up and he said, what's going on here? And, and I said to him, well, they're all talking about how to, uh, how to live for God and how to have Jesus be a part of all the relationships. And he was like, eh, whatever, that's not for me. He started to walk away. And, and I just engaged him in the conversation. And uh, funny enough, it was, it was engaging him in the aspect of God's desire to do good to his people. And it became a conversation of God's goodness. Not trying to present any, you know, specific, here's the Romans road or the gospel, but it was, here's God's goodness and his desire for goodness for you. And then, I can't remember all the details, but I just came back. It's, it's God's goodness to those who are still enemies of God, who haven't come to the re revelation of who he is. It's just like what Paul said in, in Romans 8. God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Messiah died for us. 
He died for us because it was God's desire to do good to us, to give us this way, this pathway to know him and to come into greater relationship, to have life everlasting and to know the love of God to greater depths, ever increasing all along the way. Amen. Does anyone have anything that you wanted to share? I hesitated because I don't, I don't have this all fleshed out. Um, but I've always thought uh, the knowledge of the tree of, of good and evil as the original Torah. Um, when Paul said in Romans 7, uh, I'm just going to read the portion here, and, and it, it can be Torah as we know it. It can even be the knowledge of, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. And here's kind of the, the link between the two. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetous, covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. So it is not, the weakness is not in the law. No. The weakness is in our flesh. Um, but, it, I mean, even as, um, I think in Abraham, Genesis 26, Abraham obeyed Torah, right? Um, says, God says, because he has obeyed my statutes, my this, and then it says my laws, but right in that it's my Torah. So right. even as old as Genesis 26, Torah is there, right? So. Yes. Yeah, no, it's, it's absolutely right. The God's faithfulness to God's teaching, to God's word, is what's required. And failure to do that results in death right? And our flesh is at war. And so it's the weakness of us, not the weakness of God's word. And so that word that God has spoken and revealed in various degrees and measures throughout time, it goes all the way back to the garden. And even if there was just one command, that was his word and failure to do that introduced death. So it was not the, it was not the weakness of God's command to not eat of the fruit of the tree, it was the weakness of flesh that was the failure. So it's always been the flesh that failed, never the word of God. And um, there was something that I want to look and see if this is the passage. No. Okay. Um, yeah, and, and, and I guess just iterating on that a little bit, you know, when we think about God's Word, did we, I don't know, maybe we did read this already today, but the passages that speak, yeah, it was, it was First Peter 2. He was talking about this ever-increasing deal, but all the passages that speak of the fruit of the Spirit and about us operating in kindness and gentleness and love, that's capturing the heart of the Torah. That's, that's the spirit of the Torah. That's the, 
the transformation of our spirit that we can then walk in God's word. Not, I mean, yes, by the letter, but more so by the spirit. And it's those things of the spirit, the fruit of the spirit cultivating in us that then results in the true carrying out of God's word to a far greater dimension than any bit of doing certain deeds. And I'm bringing this up just because, you know, when we read so much in the New Testament, it's very much a focus on the fruit of the Spirit. And that's because there's a full expression through the transformed Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. It's, it's a full representation of God's character and nature and His Torah expressed through us. So if we find that we're doing the details of the Torah, but lack the fruit of the Spirit working in us, then we need to recognize that we've got the cart before the horse. We've got things backwards. And we need to allow God to move within our spirit to transform us, that the walking out of his commands of his word actually produces the fruit that he desires, not any fruit that is just of our own. And we do that through abiding in this righteous one who shows us exactly what submission to God is, what humility is, what love, and no greater love hath man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends and walk in this brotherly love that Peter talked about. There's a selflessness in it. And when we feel our spirit rising up for our own self, for our own rights, for our own desires, that's when we need to recognize, hey, that's the flesh. And that needs to die so that the love and righteousness of God is what will manifest within me fully. That others may look and say, is there any people so wise and righteous as this, as those who are the followers of Yeshua, those who cling to Yeshua and live their life for him? What a wonderful testimony that we're given to walk in and to produce through Messiah and the Spirit. Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness toward us. We thank you, Lord, that you long to do good to us and that you are bringing restoration. Thank you, Lord, for the calling that you've given us. Thank you, Lord, that it's your desire to bring us to a place of oneness with you, of a relationship with you, that we love you and you love us just as we draw near to you and you draw near to us. Lord, these, these things are for us to press into. Help us, Lord, to, to trust in you, to follow you, to hear your voice, and to constantly know, Lord, that you're for us. We bless you and we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for your presence. We bless you in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas.